In the early 14th century, four Franciscan friars set out for East Asia to preach the gospel among the Mongols. In the city of Tana, modern Mumbai, however, they met their end after running afoul of the local administrators. We explore their story, a Latin Christian understanding of Asia, and more in this episode of Footnoting History. Hey Footnoters, it's Josh, and I've got quite the tale for you in this episode. It's been a while since I've visited this story, and this gap of time has allowed me a chance to think about it a bit more deeply. I think that's mostly to everyone's benefit, so let's get strapped in and take a trip that ranges from Europe to Persia and all the way to India. The story of the martyrs of Tana is a curious one. As one might expect, it's full of some pretty standard hagiographical tropes. Christians being tempted to denounce their faith, Christians surviving horrific attempts on their lives, non-Christians both recognizing the work of the divine and purposefully acting against it. You know, the usual story. But on the other hand, the account of these Franciscan martyrs tells us something rather interesting about the assumptions that Latin Christians had about other non-Latin Christians and non-Christians who lived in Asia, the relationship certain Franciscans had with the papacy, and really about the continent of Asia itself. So we need to keep these things in mind going forward, but we also need to take stock of the fact that there's a lot of intermingling of fact and fiction in the story I'm about to tell you. Longtime footnoters and saint enthusiasts will no doubt remember that the accounts of a saint's life and stories of martyrdoms follow a kind of script. Well, really a series of scripts. There's the one about the former ne'er-do-wells who have a conversion experience, and then become paragons of Christian virtue, Augustine of Hippo, for example. There's another about the child who, even in infancy, displays the sort of insight or quality that signals his or her saintliness from an early age. And there are a number of others, too. Accounts of martyrdoms work a lot the same way. We have to remember that they are didactic texts that it is their purpose to teach their reader or listener something about morality, religion, what have you. That is not to say, of course, that the story didn't happen. We have good reason to think that the story of the martyrs at Tana did happen, but we need to be careful with just how much we can do with this story that is, what historical conclusions we can draw from it. A lot of it's pretty obvious, so don't feel like you have to strap yourself in for some super heavy lifting. It'll be pretty clear. So we know about the martyrs of Tana from just a handful of accounts, and even that's pushing it. We have an account from Jordan of Catalonia, or Jordan of Severac, a traveling companion of the four Franciscans, It's his initial letter that reaches the hand of Bartholomew, the custos or the custodian of the Franciscan convent in the city of Tabriz, 
an important trading city in northern Iran, from which the friars set out. Two years after the events in Tana, two more letters arrived detailing the fates of the martyrs, with a bit more embellishment from anonymous authors. Eventually, the well-traveled Franciscan friar Odoric of Pordenone picked up the story of the friars and included it in his Itinerum, a travelogue of his wanderings through Asia. Odoric inserts himself in the story a little later, so keep him in the back of your mind as we go forward. But also keep in mind that Odoric's account was perhaps the most widely read account of these martyrs at the time. In fact, Odoric's account was so widely read that it actually generated spin-offs, though that might be a bit of an exaggeration. The martyr story got picked up by two chroniclers, and also generated a whole slew of material that somehow found its way into the Oxford University Library. One of the chronicles, this one ended up at the Vatican, written by Apollo Venice, was a whole retelling of the world's history. And as an aside, the Vatican has an amazing manuscript of some of Paul of Venice's work that's always on tour because it has this amazing map of the city of Rome from the 14th century. I tried to see it when I had my week at the Vatican archives back in 2015, but alas, the manuscript was on tour somewhere. Finally, the story of the Tana Martyrs appears in the Chronicle of the 24 Ministers General, a history of the Franciscan order written by Franciscans in the latter part of the 14th century. It's full of juicy stories about a range of things. It's also an intensely political document, largely because it paints a renegade part of the order, the so-called spiritual Franciscans, in a very positive light. In fact, it's probably spiritual Franciscan propaganda. The version of the story of the Tana Martyrs I'm going to tell you about is mostly the chronicle of the 24 Minister General's version of the events, because it's the most instructive. But I did want to put that caveat in there just so that we can add the appropriate amount of salt grains to our thinking. Now, to our dramatis personae, the four Franciscan friars, Thomas of Tolentino, James of Padua, Peter of Siena, and a brother Demetrius, who was probably from Armenia. These men left Europe at various times at the end of the 13th century and arrived in Tabriz, that northern Iranian trading city. We don't know much about these four men, except for Thomas of Tolentino. Thomas of Tolentino had quite the career before his death in India. He ran with those spiritual Franciscans, including the notorious Angelo Clareno, about whom I must do an episode at some point. Thomas had even gone to jail twice for espousing views on luxury that ran afoul of the papacy. But eventually, Thomas gained the trust of the papacy, after he brought back news from China about the supposed successes of John of Monte Corvino's missionary work. Thomas's account was so convincing 
that the Pope at the time, Clement V, decided that Kanbalik, that is, modern-day Beijing, was to be made into an archdiocese, and John of Monte Corvino was to be its first archbishop. And if you're thinking, whoa, 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 a medieval archdiocese in China? What? Yeah, friends, me too. That's what launched my dissertation. I'll do an episode one day. In any event, the four friars, along with Jordan of Catalonia and a few merchants, departed from Tabriz, beginning a long journey that they intended to end in China. Their travels took them to Ormuz. They made an agreement with a ship crew to take them to Columbum in India. Eventually, their journey brought them to Tana, again right around the modern city of Mumbai, where there were 15 Christian houses. But these houses belonged to Nestorian Christians. The friars took shelter in these homes. Jordan of Catalonia left their company at this time to go baptize a group of people in the nearby town of Parath, who were calling themselves Christians. After Jordan departed, the Nestorian hosts of the four remaining friars, husband and wife, had an argument during which the man beat his wife. The wife ran to the Qadi, whom the friars described as a bishop, and pled her case to the official. The Qadi, the court administrator, asked what proof she had of her claims, to which she responded that the four Franks, who were priests, had seen what her husband had done. The Qadi then called for the four friars and provided them with a translator, a man named Yusuf, so that they could communicate with each other. Yusuf, knowing that these men were well-versed in the Latin scriptures, went to another man named Lomelic, described as the mayor of the city, and Yusuf convinced Lomelic that he should bring the friars to his court for a religious debate. The friars, though fearful, agreed and traveled to Lomelic's court. After showing him their Bible, Lomelic began to ask the friars about the Quran and their faith. The friars replied that they didn't approve of the Quran, but believed that they had a good faith. After what seemed like a threat, the friars begged Lomelic to let them go. Lomelic agreed but asked that they must leave their Bible behind, a request which the friars refused, explaining that they could not part with their book. Thinking that they had found their way out of this delicate situation, Yusuf returned and informed the friars that the Qadi himself had requested their presence, and that they were to travel back to his court immediately. At the court of the Qadi, the friars found a somewhat hostile audience. The Chronicle records that the Muslims at the court argued that Christ was not indeed God, but only a man. Thomas of Tolentino refuted these claims with arguments of his own and explained other points of Latin Christian theology, including the doctrine of the Trinity to which the Muslims who listened recoiled. Quote, as if they were listening to a horrendous blasphemy. Eventually, the Qadi turned to the topic of the Prophet Muhammad, 
asking the four friars what they thought about him. At first, the friars attempted to gracefully parry around the Qadi's question, replying that the message of Muhammad contradicted their law and their arguments had more than proven their case. The crowd, and the Qadi himself, were not satisfied with this answer, and the Qadi pushed the friars to tell them exactly what they thought about the prophet. Thomas of Tolentino answered the Qadi. Thomas said he could not be silent about Muhammad any longer and called him, quote, the son of perdition, and said that, quote, he is in hell with the devil, who is his father, and that he is not there alone, but together with all of those who observe his law, which is a pestiferous, irrational, wicked law that goes against God and the salvation of the soul. Ouch. At these words, the Qadi and the other Muslims in the crowd became angry. The Qadi drew his sword, swung it over the friars' heads as a threat meant to induce them to recount all that Thomas had said about Muhammad. The friars, however, did not waver from their position, which greatly incensed the Qadi and the crowd. The Qadi sentenced the friars to die, and they were sent outside, tied to poles, and left to die in the sun for several hours. When they had discovered that the friars had survived, the Qadi had them brought to the town square where a fire had been prepared. After having been given the opportunity to once again recant their statements about Muhammad and had refused to do so, the Qadi ordered the friars into the fire. James of Padua was the first to enter the flames and, according to the Chronicle of the 24 Ministers General, was not only unharmed, but also danced on top of the red-hot coals and sang prayers to God. The Qadi pulled James out of the fire, stripped him naked, covered him with oil and butter, and sent him back into the flames. Once again, James remained unharmed. At the sight of James's survival, the people of the city cried out, exclaiming that the men were saints and that no harm should come to them. Lomelic, hearing these cries, allowed the three friars to return to their lodging, but advised them to leave quickly, since the Qadi had determined that they should die. Later that evening, the Qadi and Yusuf, the friars' appointed translator, went to Lomelic and convinced him that the friars should die, because to let them live would cause their people to lose faith in Muhammad. Lomelic returned to the village and arrested all of the Christians living there, though at first he could not find the friars. Eventually, three of the friars, Thomas of Tolentino, James of Padua, and Brother Demetrius came out of their lodging to say Matans, and Lomelic's armed men found them, and Lomelic told them that, though he did so against his will, he would carry out the Qadi's instructions to have them killed. The friars were stripped naked, forced to their knees, and decapitated by the swords of the soldiers. Peter of Siena, who had apparently stayed indoors, maybe he was sleeping, 
was arrested and brought before the Cadi, where the administrator promised him great riches if Peter would only deny his faith. Peter did not relent to the Cadi's temptations and demands, and was thrown back into prison. In the morning, Peter was beaten and hanged, and after he had survived his hanging for two days, he was cut down from the scaffold and immediately beheaded. Following their deaths, the friars continued to have an effect on both Christians and non-Christians alike. The Chronicle of the 24 Ministers General contains an account of a Hugolino, whose letter to the Franciscans at Tabriz includes a story about a woman at Sultan Yahe, Persia, who had seen the martyred friars in a vision. Those involved with the killing of the friars also became subject to divine punishment. The closest advisor to Lomelic, who had helped convince him to kill Thomas, James, and Demetrius, fell off of his horse and broke every single bone in his body, dying miserably. Lomelic himself had a vision of the four friars swinging a sword at his head and throwing fire at him. As a result, Lomelic went to the prison where he had been keeping the other Christians, freed them, and asked for their friendship after apologizing for what he had done. He then organized a feast and wrote an edict announcing the safety of any Christian who wished to come to his town. The Qadi, seeing the spread of Christianity in his land, ordered that anyone who received Christian baptism would suffer capital punishment. This, apparently, did not stop Lomelic, who, according to the Chronicle, built four mosques in honor of the martyrs. Eventually, news of the friar's demise reached the Khan himself, who summoned Lomelic, interrogated him about what had happened, and sentenced him and his entire family to die for the crimes that they had committed against the four friars. When the Qadi heard of what happened to Lomelic, he fled the region. Finally, Odoric of Pordenone, who carried the relics of the martyrs to their final resting place in Zaiton, which is in China, recorded several miracles that the friars performed after their deaths, including the lack of decay of their bodies, allowing Odoric himself to escape a burning house, and the summoning of wind when the boat carrying Odoric and the relics had become stuck. Odoric also claimed that in the place that the martyrs had been killed, Christians and non-Christians alike would travel to this site to have their wounds and illnesses cured by the water and earth of that place. Eventually, a Pisan merchant carried Thomas of Tolentino's skull back to Pisa, where it remains today, encased in silver at the main altar. Thomas himself is venerated as a saint, often with his three compatriots. April 9th is their day. And talk about a meteoric rise from heretic to saint. Not bad for a guy. So let's take stock of what we've heard. We have a lot, and I mean a lot, of the martyr and saint tropes about which we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. We have a curious relationship between Latin Christians and Nestorian Christians, at least from the Latin perspective. 
the Nestorian shelter and feed the traveling Franciscans, yet the Chronicle goes out of their way to describe them in what I would say are fairly derogatory terms. And then you have the descriptions of the Muslim interlocutors. It's almost like they're the personification of many medieval Christian stereotypes about Muslims. Violent, fearful, illogical, basically a funhouse mirror image of the Latin Christian self. And to put all of this in context, this all happened at a time during which the papacy was trying to secure guaranteed safety of Latin Christians living in Mongol territories. Seriously, there are more than a handful of letters from the Pope and his curia to the cons about this guarantee of safety. And these Franciscan dudes are out there saying the worst possible things about the Prophet Muhammad, knowing that they're going to face death if they keep pushing the issue. Though I would argue that this is more of a function of Franciscan spirituality and emulating an idealized life of St. Francis of Assisi. The confrontation is the moment of truth for these Franciscans. Which, of course, has consequences for how these Franciscans understood Asia not just as a geographical space, but one in which they could re-enact the martyrological drama of the ancient church. I would argue that this is a kind of spiritual colonialism, but that's an idea best left for me to think about another time. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to the martyrs of Tana. If you would like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>